This comes from Mark 5th chapter, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus, Jesus asked the man, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, the, had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, they began to beg Jesus to depart from the, their region. And he was getting into the boat, boat, excuse me, and as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed, possessed with demons begged him that, that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of God. Amen. My wife is not pregnant, so you're deeply insulted. <laughs> She is pregnant. We are, um... I did my homework. That's right. Yeah, that, that, that was dangerous ground. Uh, my wife, Catherine, is due in December. I feel like every time we come back, we, we keep multiplying, getting bigger as a family. It's, it's, we've been gone for um, three years now, which is really hard to believe. Over three years. And we're starting our fourth year doing... Um, College ministry, the RUF, uh, up, up the mountain at Appalachian State. And it always feels like a bit of a homecoming coming back. So thank you for allowing me this uh, privilege and allowing my family to come back for the, for the day and get to hang out with y'all and see y'all. So it's good to be back for sure. Um, one of the most thought-provoking films, in my opinion, the past 10 years, the most uh, intellectually stimulating Social commentaries 
has to be Talladega Nights. <laughs> the ballad of Vicky Bobby's. And uh, there it is, this very poignant scene. This is the movie starring Will Ferrell as the NASCAR driver. And he's at a dinner, he's at the dinner table with his family and uh, his friend. And I just want to read you uh, how the scene goes. Will Ferrell, who is Ricky Bobby, is praying, and he says this. Dear little baby Jesus, thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of dominoes and KFC and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, strapping sons, Walker and Texas Ranger. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who is a stone-cold fox. And then he goes on and he says, Dear little baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you use your baby Jesus powers to heal him of his horrible leg. It smells terrible and the dogs are always bothering with it. Dear tiny infant baby Jesus. And then his wife interrupts him. And she goes, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You, you don't have to keep calling him baby. And then Ricky Bobby goes, well, I like to play, I, I like the Christmas Jesus best. And I'm saying grace. And when you say grace, you can say the grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And Cal, who is his, his best friend sitting there at the table, he joins in and he goes, you know, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. <laughs> I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. And then one of the kids, Walker, speaks up and he says, I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurais. And then Cal, who's the friend, comes back and he says, well, I like to think that Jesus with like big, giant eagle wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band behind him. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. And then Ricky Bobby continues his prayer and says, Dear, eight pounds, six ounce, newborn, infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet. Well, as, as ridiculous and stupid as that scene is, it, you know, the, the authors are putting their finger on something there. And what they're putting their finger on is that we all like to envision Jesus a certain way, and he just happens to perfectly comport with all of our values and dreams and our ideas. And so everybody is basically using Jesus. I mean, we're in election year. You've got this side saying, well, I like to think of Jesus as Republican Jesus, and he happens to hold all the values of the Republican Party. You've got this side saying, well, no, I, I like to think of Jesus as Democrat Jesus, and he happens to hold all the values of my party. You know, you've got, you've got uh, Olympic athletes, NFL players, celebrities, Everybody is just using Jesus and, 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 and crafting him into their own image. And you do this, and I do this. And so what I want to do this morning is take a closer look at the passage that Pastor Howard just read. Because in this passage, what we begin to see is who Jesus really is and what his true agenda is. This little story, it is really, it is a... Um, it's a microcosm. It's part and parcel. It's a synecdoche, if you will, of the bigger gospel story. And so when we look at this, we're, we're really going to see very three very simple things about who Jesus is and what he does. And that is that he enters, he restores, and he sins. Not sins, S-I-N-S, but S-E-N-D-S. He enters, he restores, and he sends. So I just want to look at these one at a time. Here's the first thing that we see is that Jesus enters. 
Well, the story begins by Jesus and his entourage, his disciples, crossing a lake and going into this country, this region called the Gerasenes. Now, this doesn't mean anything to you and me, but to Jewish people, this was Gentile territory, which meant this was, this was unclean. This was, an, this was a dangerous place. This is, uh, this is the other side of the tracks. This is a place where little kids were told growing up by their mothers, you do not go there. And actually, if you go back into the previous chapter, chapter 4, you find out that this whole idea was Jesus' idea. He says, I want to go there. And so the disciples, I'm sure, are a little apprehensive about this, being that they've been told their whole life, do not go there. But Jesus insists. He he is determined, and so he beelines it like a heat-seeking missile to this place. And as soon as they cross the lake, dock the boat, get out on the shore, this man comes running to them, buck buck naked, mind you, screaming at the top of his lungs. I'm sure if I were one of the disciples, I would have been, yeah, this is why I didn't want to come here. This this was a delightful field trip, Jesus, but uh, let's get going. But let's let's take a closer look at this guy because the text really begins to give us some really interesting details about who he is. So here's what we learn about this man. It says in verse 3 that he lives among the tombs. He has made his home in a graveyard. He is living surrounded by death. It says in verse 2 that he has an unclean spirit. Or in other words, uh, he's possessed by demons. Now if you're anything like me, that sort of language is kind of jarring, especially to our modern Western ears. That just sounds weird, and it's hard to believe. But you have to see the Bible's just kind of unembarrassed and unashamed about making supernatural claims. It says this guy is possessed by demons. And then it goes on in verse 3 and it says he is uncontrollable. It, it says that he's so strong that nobody could, could chain him. He's like the Hulk. He would just burst out of chains anytime someone would try to chain him. But, but the idea is that the implication is, is that people used to try. They used to try and help him and contain him. But now they've just kind of given up on him. They've, they've written him off and consigned him to the graveyard to be left alone. And then in verse 5, we find out that he's in pain. It says that he spends the night crying out. He, he doesn't sleep at night. He spends his nights crying. And it goes on in verse 5 to say that he, he cuts himself uh, with stones. Now my guess is you can relate to this man somewhere. Because we see a man who is utterly alone and isolated, who is experiencing this, this uncontrollable chaos on the inside. People, he's been written off by his friends, he's been written off by society, and you can relate with this man at some level or another. Because some of you, just like this man, you feel given up on. You feel given up on by your parents, or by your friends, by your spouse. You, you feel like unwanted garbage where you're just written off completely? Some of you, just like this man, you, you can't sleep at night. Either you are, you are buried by this uh, general anxiety or guilt, or maybe the reason why you can't sleep at night is just because you can't, you can't stop working in your head. You know, you, you leave the office, but you're still at work in your head. You can't turn it off. You can't shut it down. Some of you, like this man, uh, hurt yourself. 
physically with razors or knives or lit cigarettes, where you hurt yourself in other ways where you just actually starve yourself, starve your body so that your body looks a certain way. And some of you, just like this man, you feel that inner chaos. You feel like your emotions are just out of control. You experience this this uncontrollable rage at one moment, and then this this unexplainable sadness will just bury you for weeks at a time, and you, you can't get out from under just this vague sense of fear or worry or anxiety. You can't shut it down. And here is what you have to see. It is for people like this that Jesus enters into their life. Amen. It's people exactly like this broken, out of control, a mess, evil. And Jesus pursues them and enters into their story. Now my guess is the reason why you're here this morning may be because you want to be. Your members here. Or maybe you've been drugged here by a friend. Or maybe you're here this morning because you're really early for a show. At the <laughs> but for whatever reason, you are here this morning. The reason why you're here and listening to this story and interacting with it, could it not be that maybe Jesus is entering into your life? And, and, and he is orchestrating your week and orchestrating your day so that here you are having to interact and wrestle with him. And could it be that maybe he is entering? Maybe for the first time? Maybe for the thousandth time. But what we learn here is that Jesus enters. He enters into people's stories. You know, you, you can never be uh, too bad for Jesus, but you can't be too good for Jesus. And Jesus is here showing us that here's this man who is as bad as it gets, as messed up as it gets, as, as crazy as it, as it gets. And Jesus pursues and enters. That's the first thing we, we learn. Here's the second thing. The second thing is that Jesus restores. He restores. You look at verse 7. I think this is very interesting. It says this, uh, verse 7, And crying out with a loud voice, he, the man, said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. It says that the man says this. It doesn't say that the demon says this, and it doesn't clarify to say that the demon is speaking through the man. It says the man is saying this. And so the man, I think it's weird. If the man runs up to Jesus, I would think that the man would say something like this. Hey, I'm miserable. I hate this. Help me. Get this thing out of me. But he looks at Jesus and says, do not torment me. Don't torture me. He sees Jesus' redemptive help as torture, as torment. And I think we learned something very interesting about the kingdom of Satan, about the nature of sin here, is that it wants to destroy you. And it will convince you, it will tell you that to submit to Jesus' loving pursuit, it is torture, it is death. It will not heal you, it will not liberate you, it will ruin you. That's the lie of Satan. Now there is this um, very shameful part of my story that, that, that my wife knows and maybe three people on the planet know. And this, uh, well, I have for years had this, this invincible, just this incredible pull in my heart to say, if, if, if anyone finds this out about you, they're going to think radically different of you. Uh, they're not going to like you. They're going to reject you. 
um, they're going to be grossed out by you. And so for years, I had just this, this part of my life that was just buried and buried. And I said, no one will ever find out about this. And this past spring, I began to fight those instincts. And so I called up one of my friends on the phone, and I was terrified. Because I, I wanted to bring this part of me out into the light and let people that know me closest that I trust know. By the way, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> as much as you may want me to, weirdos. But I, I brought this thing out. And I called my friend, and I remember being terrified. Right? My, the phone was shaking in my hand, thinking, what is, he gonna, what is his reaction going to be when I tell him this? And I told him, and he assured me that he loved me, that God loves me, that God forgives me. And, and I still keep up with this friend. He, he actually still likes me. <laughs> and and the, thing that was, was the, the, thing that, the thing that was was that I'm, I was convinced by Satan for years, if I bring this thing out into the light and let people really know me, it, it will ruin me. And what I discovered is that when I actually submitted and took a step of faith in Jesus to bring it out, I, I feel liberated. Amen. It's freeing. Yeah. And, and actually now my relationship with this friend is actually so much more profound because now I know that he loves me to the bottom. He actually knows me. I don't have to hide anymore. I can just be me, messy, screwed up, all that I am in front of him. But for years, I have believed the lie. If anyone finds this out, it will be death. It will not be life. And that's all I'm saying. For some of you, you will be convinced by Satan himself that to submit to Jesus' healing, redemptive power is torture, is torment. To forgive someone, to refuse to forgive someone, Satan will whisper to your ear, this will ruin you. Do not forgive. Hold on to it. You keep in control. You keep in power. You stay safe. And besides, you're guaranteed that it will never hurt you again. Do not forgive. And when you do that, when you listen to his lies, it's like drinking rat poison. And you rot from the inside out. But to forgive, to submit to Jesus' healing power, it brings liberation, freedom, reconciliation, some of you are convinced by Satan that to submit to Jesus' ideas about your sexuality is death. That if I actually follow Jesus and serve Jesus with my sexuality, it will be torture, it will be torment. It will not be liberation. What? <laughs> to go against every instinct in my body to follow Jesus? That feels like torture. And if you refuse and if you, if you deny Jesus' claim to your sexuality and your life, you will destroy yourself and you'll damage everybody else around. It's liberation, it's freedom, it's healing to submit to Jesus. But the whisper of Satan is, if you do, it's torture, it's not healing. It will ruin you, it will not heal you. So that's what this man does. He says, do not torture me. And then look what Jesus says to him. He asks him his name. And this man says his name is Legion. Which is a bit of a technical term because in the Roman army, a legion was uh, a, the designation of a size of a squadron of 6,000 soldiers. And so scholars think that basically this man was possessed by like 6,000 demons. So you have Jesus going up against this enormous army of evil. And with a word, Jesus cast these demons out of this man. 
and restores him. Look at what it says in verse, in verse 15. We see that this man is transformed and renovated and restored. Verse 15, it says, They run up, they see the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Amen. Jesus restores this man's sanity. He takes the chaos of his life and we see calm. He renovates him and restores him from the inside. A few years ago, uh, there was an article in the Atlantic Monthly uh, that this author wrote about an experience that he had in a club in New York City where he went to go see Wynton Marsalis, who is a famous jazz trumpeter. He found out that Marsalis was playing in this small little club and uh, went to go see him. And it was this great venue, uh, the band's with him, Marsalis is doing this amazing job, playing flawlessly, perfectly through the night. And at, at the end of the night, the band steps down, and it's just Marsalis with his trumpet playing the solo uh, American standard battle. And the author's just saying, you know, he's playing it flawlessly, perfectly. It's just like this small kind of intimate uh, setting. It's just this most amazing musical night of his life. And, and, and he's playing this uh, ballad, which has this very kind of simple melody to it. And kind of like what we do uh, here, when, when you get to the end of a song, you kind of repeat the last uh, phrase or so, the last few melodies or so, and kind of slow it down. And so he, he's doing that. He's repeating the, the chorus over and over, kind of winding this thing down. And he's kind of slowing it down to like the crescendo of the whole night. He's got three notes left to finish this night out in someone's cell phone goes off. And here's how the author describes the ringtone. They say, it was a rapid, sing-songy melody and electronic beeps. And so people, you know, start kind of uh, chuckling and kind of nervously picking up their drinks again. And, you know, the guy with the cell phone, you know, runs out to take the call. And the author writes on a napkin. He says he writes this on a napkin, magic ruined. But Marsalis is still at the mic with his trumpet. And he kind of raises an eyebrow. And he begins to play on the trumpet the melody of the ringtone. <laughs> and plays it once, plays it again, plays it over and over, and then he starts to riff on it and improvise, and he starts taking it upscale and down, you know, up-tempo, down-tempo, changes the key, and somehow reweaves it back into the original song that he was playing, yeah. and then Christian with the final two notes and wraps up the whole night. Now this author had written down magic ruined, but the magic was not ruined because he didn't realize that he was in the presence of a master who could take that silly, chaotic ringtone and reweave it back into beauty and reweave it back into music. And this story is showing you Jesus is the master who will take the chaos of your life and he will reweave it back into beauty, back into music again. Amen. You will have your sanity restored and you will actually become more human as a result. Now before we jump into this last point, I, just, I want you to just see the crowd's response because it's fascinating. If you look, you know, here's this man who's been a menace to their society. He's restored He's sane. They do not throw a party. They do not, they do not have a celebration. They're not even happy. It says that they're afraid, but they're also ticked. Look at verse 17. It says that they beg Jesus to leave. Why in the world would they beg Jesus to leave? 
Well, in order for Jesus to heal this man, he, he sends these demons into this herd of 2,000 pigs. Why? I don't know. That's not important to the story. The, story, the, the thing that's important is to remember that this is Gentile territory. And Jewish people do not eat pigs, remember? And so they're not eating pork, sadly. And so um, the Gentiles have this, this is a pig farm. This is a pig farm. And what Jesus does to heal this man is he basically decimates 2,000 livestock. They run off the hill and drown in the water and they die. And this is their livelihood. So to these Gentile people, Jesus just came in and destroyed their economy. And they're ticked about it. They say, get out of here. Now that's understandable, but the sad reality is, is that frankly, they thought healing legion, saving legion was not worth it. It was too costly. It would cost us 2,000 pigs for to heal this man. He is not worth it. But to Jesus, this man is worth it. Amen. To heal this man, to restore this man, it cost him 2,000 pigs. But to save this man ultimately would cost Jesus' life. Amen. He has said that this man and people like him are so worth it to me, so infinitely worth it to me, I will give up the, uh, the most valuable thing that I have, which is me. I will sacrifice myself. And so on the cross, where do we find that? If you fast forward to the end of the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus who is naked. Mm -hmm. We see Jesus who is outside of the city among the tombs. Mm -hmm. We see Jesus who is being alienated from his friends and alienated from his heavenly father. We see Jesus who is being cut. Jesus says the way, the only way that I can deal with sin and with Satan and with evil and death is to be your substitute. And so he becomes legion at the end of the gospel. He steps in our place and becomes our substitute. He gets crushed to power by the wrath of God so that you and I can be restored in the wholeness. You are worth it. You are worth it. But I, you know, I, I work with college students, and I can't tell you how many conversations I have with college students where they feel insecure and embarrassed about talking about their issues. And, and the line that they say is, I, I don't want to be a burden to people. I don't want to be a burden. You said this, I'm sure. And what they're saying is, I don't think I'm worth it. I don't think other people... Their time is, is worth listening to me. I'm a waste of time to them. And Jesus is looking at you and he's looking at me this morning and saying, no, you are not. That is a lie. You are infinitely worth it. So much so, I'm willing to give up myself to get you. You're that worth it to me. He enters, he restores, and lastly, and I'll be brief here, he sins. He sins. If you look at verse 18, it says the people are begging Jesus to leave. And at the same time, this, this man is begging to go with Jesus. <laughs> he runs up to Jesus like, please, would you let me go with me? Uh, let me go with you. He basically, he wants to be in ministry with Jesus. He wants to cross the lake with Jesus and be an overseas missionary with Jesus and his team. And Jesus says to him in verse uh, 19, ah, I'm good. <laughs> it just says, nah, you say now, why wouldn't Jesus want this man to join him? Because if you think about it, this man has an incredible testimony. I mean, he could pack out stadiums and tell his story. And it's, certainly he is an asset 
to the program here, right? But look at what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, go home. Go home. Go to your friends. Go to your family. And tell them about my mercy to you. He doesn't say start an evangelistic program. He doesn't say I want you to crank up a nonprofit. He just says go home and tell people about my mercy. No seminary training, no leadership position. Just go be yourself now. But what's interesting is that Jesus sends us this morning, if we identify with him as believers, he is sending us somewhere. And the where that he is sending us is where you actually already live. He's saying, go home to the places and the family and the context that you live and you operate in and love people there. Tell people about my mercy to you there. You know, it's interesting. I think Christians, we, we get this, we get really excited and enthusiastic about loving and serving other people over there. I, I want to do something great for the kingdom over there. In China, in Africa, in a place in Charlotte, 30 minutes away from where I live. And while all of that is great and absolutely necessary, and someone's got to go do that, what Jesus is saying here is that the bottom line, basic place where God sends you is home, is to your family, to your friends, to your neighborhood, to, your, to where you work. It's actually a lot harder to love and to serve people in your local context than it is somewhere else. And you know this, right? Uh, it, it is a lot easier to go feed people in India for a week than it is to ask your spouse for forgiveness every single day. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's, it's easy to go take uh, a couple weeks and go build a home somewhere else than it is to repent to your spouse, to repent to your children, to repent to your neighbors. To repent to your boss who you don't respect. That is hard. But that is where Jesus is sending you and I to embody the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. You know, in uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, which if you're familiar, the basic premise is, is that it's this kind of fictitional, fictitional? fictitious story about these two demons. There's kind of a mentor demon and kind of an apprentice demon. And the mentor is walking him through how to get his human subject, how to, how to basically capture him. They call, they call their human subjects uh, patience. And, and uh, here's what this older mentor writes to this younger one. He says this, there is going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. There's going to be some goodness and some ugliness in your human patient's soul. And he goes on and says, The great thing, what you need to do, is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors, to whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference, to people he doesn't even know. The malice thus becomes wholly real, and the benevolence largely imaginary. Isn't that brilliant? Here's what he's saying. It is a ploy of Satan for you to hate, be irritated, and frustrated, and angry amongst the people that you actually live with and to have all this joy and excitement and missional enthusiasm for people who you've never even met. And, and according to Lewis, he's saying that's satanic. 
Look at those bumper stickers. We have them all over Boone. That's, I, I live in uh, a hippie village. <laughs> but the bumper stickers, I'm going to have around here, but they say buy local. You know, prioritize local. I want to write, create a bumper sticker that says love local. Yeah. Love the one you're with. <laughs> <laughs> that was ad lib. She had a sugar <laughs> That's where Jesus is sending you and calling you to and moving you toward this morning. I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Um, I know that for many of you, the ringtone has interrupted your life. And this idea of wanting to actually love and serve and talk about mercy to other people feels so foreign and so bizarre because of the chaos of the world that you're spinning in right now. And so really the invitation of this passage is first and foremost to come to the Master and to drink deeply of His mercy for you, which is extended. He loves broken, messy, evil, sinful people. He loves them. So His arms are open as He pursues and as He chases you and as He embraces you when you come to Him. To drink first of His mercy. Experience His mercy and then extend it. And that's the invitation to you this morning.